Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, Blay Disgusting's horror video game podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bolt. And this week we're diving into the dark depths of 2017's Scanner Somber from developer Introversion Software and Ken Forrest's 2022 bite-sized horror experience, Lidar.exe, a bite-sized horror game inspired by the former game. Both games submerge the player in darkness, and they must traverse their environments by mapping using a LiDAR scanner. The scanner bounces light off the surfaces and measures the time it takes to be reflected back, which then creates a dot-based representation of the scanned area. Essentially, they're painting the game's black canvas world with color to plot their course. So Neil, you wrote about both of these games for your Dread XP column, Mm. uh, and you wanted the opportunity, you know, not only to expose me to them, but to maybe delve into Scanner Somber a bit more, because... It is the type of game that, you know, when I sat down to play it, it was a little overwhelming at first just because of how sensory it is and how unconventional it is, I think, in traversing an environment that, you know, largely you could say, oh, this kind of has the staples of just a walking simulator. You're walking through an environment and there's a bit of story being told. It's moody. It's atmospheric. But in actually playing the game, there's a lot more to it than that. And I think that the little gameplay that there is that the player has control of, it really does add a new facet to that type of traditional experience. Yeah. Um, so which one of those two titles would you like to chat about first? Um, so it's a tricky one. I, In brief, quickly, I'll just talk about why these two titles and why I came to it. I have to talk about LiDAR XE, uh, XE first because that was the reason I found Scanner Sombra, which is a real rarity when you think about it. Um, when you go to Itch.io, generally the reason you pick a game is because it reminds you of something. You, know, you go, oh, yeah, I, this kind of gives me this game's vibes. And I like this. But then I saw LiDAR XE and I was like, wow, yeah, this is interesting. I like the sound of this. And then even what I thought about it as a game before playing it was like blown out of the water by actually playing it and what it did. And I was like, grand, grand, brilliant. Like, and I was just, you know, going through the page afterwards thinking about writing it because you know, this is one of those things where I didn't have a game in mind before that week's article and I was just sort of looking for a game that was sort of be the inspiration that week and that turned out to be the one and yeah on the page itself yeah, they're, they're quite upfront and clear by saying oh you know uh, we're inspired by this game Scanner Sombra which uh, came out in 2017 it was like Okay, cool. So I played this, went to find the scanners on ruin. It was like under a fiver. So I was like, why not? I'll try that as well. Because it looked like a, a, you know, the next step up of what that was doing. So whereas LiDAR is a 15 minute experience, um, that is, tells its story in one way, you know, scanner sombra is the next level. You know, it's, you know, itself saying it's inspired by the likes of Gone Home and Dear Esther so you know what kind of game you're getting in that regard but also what it brings to the table is not like that any of those games so it's really cool in in how that happens so in the article I talked mostly about LiDAR and how that handled horror and um, and that but I didn't get to talk much about Scansonra I brought it in there at the end because well I have to mention this because it was great that I found this game from this game, you know, because not, as I said, normally it's the other way around. You like something, you go to itch.io and go, Oh, that reminds me of that. I'll play that. And this, this was very much 
a first instance of being the other way around, which is just shows how much we're using itch.io now, I think, <laughs> in terms of uh, <laughs> getting things forward. But yeah, so if we can, we will talk about Scanner Sombra first, which, um, you know, is set in a cave system underground where, you know, you wake up to find things have been deserted. You find this tech, you know, this advanced version of a LiDAR scanner, which is literally, as you said before, lasers bouncing off objects, coming back to you and giving you a read. This done through a headset that basically lets you see this, you know, 3D objects in this dot matrix-esque light, if you will. Um, and that in itself is such a striking thing to see the further you go in. Um, because dependent on proximity in this game, you know, the colors change, you know, the further away you are, the colder the colors. So, uh, you know, nearby things are red, orange, and then once they get into the distance, they are blue. But anything you've scanned, you know, all the way through your pathway is there constantly. So whenever you look back, you've basically mapped your way through. So anything you haven't done is like obviously absent. But the cool thing about it is you just, you look back and you basically see this pathway you've carved and, you know, it's almost like you can see through walls, but not. And the other side of that is that you have an uncertainty about where you're going and what you're doing and you're slowly discovering things that in most games you know the flashlight would be your tool here and this is basically you know an expansion on the idea of a flashlight in horror games you know, it allows you to reveal the environment in bits but um in a way that uh, it felt really refreshing to me to have this game that just lets you find little things and little moments almost by chance and the fact that you could just miss things like little details and it, it's amazing that the structure works still with that in mind when you think that you're in total darkness scanning whatever you might miss stuff you might not and then the escalation of it and the, the way they implement horror really cool I, I was saying to you after I was talking about these games how it reminded me of um, you know there's a bit in one of the paranormal activity films where the best bit of it is that they actually managed to find a really good use for the Xbox Connect, um, which is, as I said, probably the best use of the Xbox Connect <laughs> ever, um, which is not saying much, but, you know, where it, obviously it has some technology that is very similar to that, where, you know, the Connect bounces the laser light out, comes in and reflects whatever's there and you get those sort of spooky moments where oh there's a shape there's someone's moving around but they're not really there sort of thing and it's you know scanner sombra um does that you know and so does lidar x so it's a really cool way of doing things and it's a cave-based horror sort of experience you know um lidar is the more intently horror-based thing at the two which is why i feel it deserves to be mentioned as its own sort of distinct thing but scanner sombra um it's really well put together and you know, i think it, you know it did very well in terms of like uh general reception by those who played it um slightly middling in in a critical sense but um i think it just came at the time you know where a lot of games that were channeled towards being vr friendly you know were coming out and then you're getting compared to this that and the other 
kind of gets swept under. I'd love to have played this in VR. I'll tell you, oh, I, I think yeah. it would have just been <laughs> marvellous because you know, the things it does without being in VR are just absolutely splendid. Um, yeah, it just, it's just something I hadn't really played before. I know there are games that use similar things. There's a game where I think you're blind and it uses like, like echolocation style hearing yeah. to sort of map images. I can't remember the name of the game, but it I think it was that. made by X Two K Boston people. Yeah, yes, yeah, it was. It was X Bioshock people, if I remember very rightly. So yeah, and it um, did that, and that was quite noteworthy. But this feels stronger. You know, this is um, by Introversion, who did Prison Architects. Yeah, it's very different. <laughs> I couldn't different. believe that when I saw that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, really? Wow, that's cool. I like when developers have two very distinct kinds of games. You know, and like. They're famous for this one, but they do stuff like this. And so maybe some of that was uh, people going, well, I didn't like that this wasn't like the other games they make. I don't know, they do make stuff more like this, to be fair, generally. Um, I mean, it fills the remit for the kind of thing we like. You know? It's short, it's punchy, it gets everything out of the way nicely, it builds nicely, it doesn't go overboard with trying to scare you or jump scare you, which would be very easy in this. Oh, man. Yeah. I think that if anything, like going from, I played uh, Lidar first and then I dove into uh, Scanner Somber and, you know, I became more and more impressed with Scanner the farther I got into it Mm. that they weren't, and, you know, again, I'm not trying to compare the two because of the, you know, the size of the experiences and whatnot, but just in terms of like, it was so clearly illustrated to me that in Scanner, they could have gone overboard with the horror aspect yeah. of it, right? And I think that that would have been very easy to do. It could have been every you know couple of steps, something has to appear, something has to chase you, something has to jump out at you. And it really just lets you occupy that space. And it does place the emphasis on just exploration in a way yes. that I found to be refreshing, I think, in the fact that They've designed this cave system in this world and they've given you the tools and it never became difficult to really get the sense no. of where you're going, which was my fear going into the game because I played Lidar and I was like, okay, that was 15 minutes. There were a couple of sections in that experience where I was kind of like wandering aimlessly almost in a space and it didn't feel necessarily like the geography of the world itself was pointing me in a direction I should mm. go. Whereas within the first few minutes of Scanner, I didn't have that problem in going to the full length of time I spent with it, which was a good 90 minutes, give or take. I never felt that this was a world that I could really truly get lost in just because of, like you had said, when you're using that scanner and you can kind of gauge items that are closer to you or farther than you based on the color and the reception that you're getting from that scanner, because it has different settings. Like you can be really fine fine tipped uh, with the yeah. laser and like narrow in on something, or you can make it be wider to, you know, capture more of a, uh, a corridor or a cave That's that you're it. in. And I think, you know, like you had said, within the first 30 seconds of playing this game, I was like, I really wish I was a VR guy. Cause this would be the first thing that I would play in VR because again, it just, it's a compliment to the fact that they're able to take something that I would say is, akin to those influences that they stated themselves, right? That being Gone Home and uh, Dear Esther, right? Where it's, you're in this space and it's more about just exploring and it's just about walking through it. 
And what Scanner Somber does that so many other games have done similarly is that they give the player more agency in how they want to map out mm. their, you know, it's obviously linear in terms of going through the cave system, but it's up to the player to really unearth, if you will, like the mystery that that's shrouded in, or like a fog of war almost, if you will, um, to go through that environment. And I found that to be far more engaging than if it was just a flashlight, like you had said. It kind of is a smart, more engaging updating on that more standard uh, facet of not only horror games, but just games in general, like survival games. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I know one of the common complaints with this is, you know, with the short time that isn't trying to be scary, but which yeah, was a complaint about a lot of games from in that sort of era of doing you know, these uh, exploration style narrative games. That you know they they try to appear like they were doing something spooky and then they wouldn't be outwardly spooky. Yeah, in much of the same way people sort of roll their eyes at the idea of like elevated horror mm. as a term because you know to describe anything that's um, trying to be above the station of just what people general people think horror should be. And you know I th- I liken this to you know the sort of thing that is a uh, more melancholy sort of ghost story if you will which is yeah. obviously i've mentioned multiple times on this podcast now i i fucking love a melancholy ghost story you know and um this does that really well um and uses the tech to explain it as well you know the, the idea that oh you know this is like um prototype technology and you know there, there are bugs in it and but are they bugs? You know, you know, are you actually just seeing like pre-recorded sort of you know, bits of what's happened before you put on the headset, or is it you know something else? You know, at play. And I like that. You know, that that was the great thing about it. Going through it, it had something that felt logical, but had that element of uncertainty to it. You know, without going overboard or twisty. You know, it really just presented it as being like a probable sort of thing in the same way that much of paranormal things in real life when you think about them have a logical explanation yeah but at the same time you can see how you could look at it and go well no but to me there's something there that could you you could easily say no there's a supernatural element yeah so which is the very basis of why anyone gets into horror Mm. is sort of thinking of wouldn't it be cool if we could find out this if oh is that real is it is this thing that seems quite innocuous actually something spooky and you know we do it all the time in, in life and it is great when a game gets that and understands that and I, I think you know whatever you may say about the length the pace the, the way it executes uh its horror is yeah, you know, fine, but I think it goes for a very particular vein of horror and does very well at it. I think that part of what makes this such a concise and, you know, well-executed experience overall mm. is that, you know, the game doesn't take more than two hours to complete. I think that that is partly why, like you had said, like the scares in the game, I think, are complemented by the pacing of the overall experience, the fact that they are so even-handed in deploying them. Again, like 
the fact that it begins and it has this arc with the scares, much like a film does, right? Yeah. Initially, oh, well, of course, it's a system malfunction or it's a tech malfunction. It's spotty hardware. And then seeing how that evolves. But the way that it evolves is not to, you know, have those frequencies just be more so or just, you know, that thing that I always complain about where it's like, oh, well, if you want something to be scary, you have to have more scares rather than less scares, but be higher quality or have more significance to them. Yeah. I think that that's partially why this game is so reserved, I think, in its employment of the horror aspects. But at the same yeah. time, each one of them is memorable in a way that, you know, if it was a longer experience, it probably wouldn't be because there we would be sort of more inundated with them. Um, and I think that the fact that they're able to tie the environment itself into the scares is really great because, you know, yeah. the first portion of the game is just going through mapping the environments, traversing, trying not to walk off a ledge. That's another thing that yeah. that's the survival horror aspect of it, right? Is that if you're not being careful with how you're scanning environments and how you're paying attention to where you're walking, then you're going to wander off a cliff. You're going to walk through a bridge that has one of the panels of wood off and you're just going to mm -hmm. fall to your death. Um, and I like that there's a pairing of that because the game introduces as a survival game, not even survival horror, right? You start yeah. in a tent, you look around, it's almost like like the long dark or something like that. And I like that they challenge that very standard sort of introduction to a survival game. And then it expands more into like, oh, maybe some, there's more to this cave and the history of that cave. Um, I like that, you know, the way that they show the scares is not along the lines of like, a more fantasy depiction of a ghost, right? It's intrinsic to the technology that's front and center in it. And that you see, oh, you can see the outlines in that tech technical mapping of a figure, of a phantom, if you will. Yeah. And initially they're just standing there, just being these kind of like creepy shapes and they make a little bit of a noise. But then later on, they start to move and like there's a section where you have to avoid one of them if you're in the water for too long, which I want to come back to because that scare in and of itself is not only because of, you know, the suddenness with which the phantoms appear, but it's more tied into the sound design and the music, which I think we definitely need to dedicate a good chunk of time to because this game, I think, has some of the most impressive sound design and just combination of the score for an experience like this that I think I've experienced in a while because of how much it complements the gameplay. It's not just music that you know is atmospheric or elicits an emotion but the way in which everything really does flow together in a way that makes it makes maybe standard scare conventions that much more effective um, it doesn't end up just being like oh there's somebody standing there it's more so just the build-up to each of those instances which i think are pretty significant yeah it really is that soundtrack um it's uh no coincidence that that sold as a separate thing when you buy it. You know, it is, um, it deserves that recognition. It was a, again, a very big part of that sort of era of games anyway. Um, where the soundtracks did a lot of heavy lifting and because the developers understood what magic you could ring from a good soundtrack accompaniment. And yeah, not just that, I mean, the sound in general is, is excellent you know i think um you get a sense of space from you know when using the scanner and how it echoes in certain areas and different types of echoes to sort of tell you how wide and 
chasmy you know the area is it's mind-blowing use of sound at times yeah, i i think that gets underappreciated um when criticism are made about maybe the story being very light which you know i, I agree it's not the strongest story in terms of like narrative but i think it tells a very good story in terms of what it presents in uh, an audiovisual sort of language, you know, in terms of the music, in terms of how it um, presents things with the LiDAR scanner. I think my my favourite comment, which was a fairly positive review on it, was like, it's the unfinished one with power washing, which is like, <laughs> yeah, that's I, I like that. Because, um, <laughs> that that really does sum up the two things I, I find very satisfying about progression in this game. Um, for anyone that hasn't played it, the unfinished one was by the developer who went on to make um, What Remains of Edith Finch. And it was very much like you, you paint the world in ink to find things in it. You know, and um, yeah, straight with it. It was very much the second that I saw that comment, I was like, yes, it is very much like, like <laughs> that game. And then the power washing element was like, yeah, this very much explains why it's satisfying to sort of do that, you know, scanning stuff um, because only recently we've had that power wash simulator game that's really tapped into that sort of need to sort of do something and just like to cover a surface and make it whole and it's, <laughs> oh, it's strangely satisfying and I suppose that's why it, it feels fresh and relevant to me in other ways that it's like oh it reminds me of something old it reminds me of something new and but it is very much its own thing and that's great and uh, yeah, to remind me of two games you know, that are so very different, but you know, are pleasing in their own ways. It's like, yes, yes, that's great. I, I am very much in for more of this sort of stuff. Yeah, I think we need to mention that the the person behind you know the the sound design and the music was Alistair Lindsay, who I think deserves a great deal of credit in just overall, you know allowing this game to as light on story as it is. And, you know, in a little bit, we'll get back to the story element, which I want to talk about in a little more depth. But I think that a great deal of the emotional weight and the overall, you know, atmosphere of this game is the sound, like you said, considering, yeah. you know, you're going to, you're never going to have a perfect uh, mapping of any one environment, right? You're no. always going to be about 75, 80%, but there's always going to be a couple of sections you don't necessarily fill in. And the sound design picks up a lot of that slack in terms of helping you to regulate where you are in the environment, yes. whether you're walking around, you know, in gravel, if you're walking in the water, which becomes a later section, which is incredibly important, not only, you know, because you come to a section where if you walk in the water, you start to make noise and mm. one of the phantoms will actually chase after you. And that be can become one of the few obstacles in the game, right? Is that you can either walk off a cliff or a phantom can get you. And, you know, mm. wow, the, uh, there's not a great price associated with death in this game. It kind of just reboots instantly a few steps to where you were. It still is very unsettling when you hear that howl. And then if you kind of leap yeah. into the deep end of the water and your speed is your movement speed's restricted, then it kind of becomes like, okay, I got to get to the surface. I got to get to the, or the shore, <laughs> the shore, the shore. And, you know, there's a great deal of tension in that moment every single time I find just because of, you know, 
you try to move in the right direction and all you can hear is like the water splashing in your feet. And then you hear a little glimmer of a howl behind you. And Mm. that every single time, it's like a Jaws moment, right? You can kind of almost hear the water breaking right behind you. And then you never know how far behind they are and grabbing you. Um, So from that element, I really, really enjoy that aspect of the sound design. And at the same time, and it'll be a little more apparent, I think, once we talk about the story in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the music in this game, the original score, does such a great job of carrying a lot of the emotional investment in this journey of going through the caverns, I think. You know, again, you don't know a great deal about the protagonist. You don't know a great deal about the cave system itself. You just know that this is a significant chapter in that person's life. And there's something that you are in the, that you are quite literally left in the dark about in terms of the importance of what's happening it's kind of one of those things where you feel like you have a couple of the puzzle pieces but you're missing that key piece to put all of mm-hmm. this together and i think that the score does a fantastic job of capturing the moments that are supposed to be more somber in terms of not just that you're uncovering the history of the caverns but you're uncovering the history of the protagonist himself without yeah. being told anything right out of the gate Yes. It tackles that emotional sort of ebb and flow roller coaster, if you will, in terms of like, oh, I'm going to come to this area and there's some semblance of a significance other than just being afraid or being terrified, right? Mm-hmm. I think too often sometimes we can listen to scores in horror games and it's like, oh, this is supposed to be a tense moment. But then it's tense moment followed by tense moment followed by and it never goes past that sometimes. And in this, there is a really nice ebb and flow to the score that then really does heighten a lot of the little bits of text that you get and the significance of those texts that you receive and learning more and more about the history, you know, as I've said mm-hmm. about the cavern and uh, the protagonist himself. Yeah. I mean, that is a significant part of the story to me in terms of, you know, it's, I suppose it seems cliche in a way to the way it goes and, Again, I think where this game really does excel is in where any horror thing excels is taking stuff we know and making it feel different and new and fresh. And yeah, you will always have something very familiar in any horror thing because how can you not? We've had a hundred years of cinema. We've had hundreds of years of books you are going to get stuff that is repeated at infinity and it, because why wouldn't it? You know, it, it's the go-to, it's the crutch, it's the inspiration that everyone has. You know, when something is out there that inspires people, more people are going to try to build on it, do their own thing out of it. That is a big, big thing, you know, that has to be done. Um, and oftentimes that, that does result in getting things like this that um, maybe didn't get the plaudits it deserved at the time and can be sort of reappreciated, what, like five years on now, that where we can say, oh, maybe this did a lot right, you know. Not perfect, sure, but for what it does, really smart, I think, and the way it goes towards its end and its revelations to me works really well. I really did like that part of it. Yeah. You know, it, without being like 
super surprising at that point. I, I still found it like melancholy horror in the same way that, yeah. And I mentioned this when we were talking about something else the other week, and I couldn't remember the name of the film, but it was uh, Pulse. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, that kind of somber, melancholy ghost story horror about, you know, that has a technological edge to it. Um, yeah, this is that kind of thing. And yeah, I love that film so much. And it, anything that reminds me of it is straight away just endearing. So yeah, it has a lot of that, yeah, straight away. Yeah, and you know, I, I think we need to dive into the uh, the story more because I have mm. more that I want to say about how the score and you know, it's along the lines of what you had said. The story itself is not all that surprising, right? I think that we you can kind of start to see the conclusion of it long before it actually gets there. Yeah, it's the type of thing where the flavor text that's introduced that reveals more about the cavern and its history are these things that it's like, they're not outside the realm of like the types of creepy pasta type stories that you might read about online or something that regards, but more so why Scanner Somber seems to be, and is I find to be more remarkable of an experience than I was anticipating is because of how all the elements really do, you know, complement one another in a way that takes something that from a, you know, surface level glance might seem familiar, but the presentation is what makes this feel maybe more remarkable or it's more successful than you might think going into it. Um, but why don't we take a quick break and then we can come back and unpack a little bit more of uh, my vague praise. Uh, <laughs> we can dive into that a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And we are back talking Scanner Somber. And now I can dig into a little bit more of the uh, the meat of what I was trying to get at um, and why I think that the score really is an element of this game that I hope didn't get overlooked in the praise for this game or get overlooked overall, like critically, Mm. because it's something that I think stands as an example of why sound design and score are these things that should not and should never be in any medium, like be overlooked because Mm. it does such a good job of signifying the importance of something, whether it be to the player or signifying the importance of an environment, whether that be, you know, the narrative tied to it or just overall, you know, making an environment that largely throughout this experience look fairly similar, tying a significance emotionally to it, but not having it be like some massive visual set piece or have some action occur. It's more so just what the music is able to evoke out of the player. Hmm. Um, And I think it's interesting. I was listening to the soundtrack before we were recording. And at the end of the soundtrack, there's a good 10 minute track, I think of the composer, Alistair Lindsay, um, talking about where they were, you know, in their life when they were, you know, composing this and whatnot. Yes. And the fact that they were dealing with a great deal of loss. They lost their father in this time period. They lost, I believe, four of their pets. So they're dealing with a great amount mm. of loss in this period. And I heard something that was really interesting that I had never considered that a composer would have to, you know, deal with. And that's the struggle of containing real world emotions that you're dealing with and not letting it interfere with the score that you're writing for something, you know, for somebody like me, that is, uh, I guess the best way to put it would be musically illiterate. Um, (laughs) don't know like the process that goes into it or any of that, just somebody that enjoys music. It was interesting to me because when you're talking about a game that is very somber, that is very melancholic, I would think that like dealing with, those types of emotions in your own life would actually help that. 
But then when I started to think more about this experience and the story and the roller coaster of it, it is this thing that really does hit a number of emotions. It's not just this melancholic journey from, you know, A to B the entire time. There's a couple of moments in this that are very uplifting, I find. There's yeah. one section where you find a boat, right? And you're kind of just doing a boat ride and you don't necessarily have to scan the environment. You're not encountering any enemies or uh, phantoms, if you will. You're not going to fall off a waterfall. You're kind of just going for this lovely ride that has this upbeat, almost uh, acoustic score that plays that's really mm -hmm. wonderful. And you look up and you can see that the sky of the cave has been mapped already. You don't even have to map it. And it has a different color palette. I think it's like teal or something. Mm -hmm. So it almost resembles like this starry night. And that was a moment that I really, really loved and stood out to me, not only because it was far different than a majority of the set pieces in this game, but also that... When learning this now about the composer, what they were going through, and you know, I haven't experienced the same loss that they have, but it is the type of thing that you would, I would imagine, you know, you're in this place where you're, you know, heartbroken, you're dealing with loss, but yeah. at the end of the day, hopefully, it would be this thing where you're going to hit a reach, a moment in your own grief where you start to be optimistic about the future, like you're almost coming out of. I would, you know, personal experience, like coming out of like a depression fog or something, you can start to see the light, if you will. And that's probably Absolutely. an oversimplification. But that moment in and of itself felt like a breath of fresh air in that, okay, maybe we're about to find our way out of this cave. This is more of like the optimism of coming out of uh, tragedy or trauma, if you will. Yeah, it, it definitely has elements of that. Um, yeah, I was surprised to find that it wasn't connected quite as well as I thought it might be knowing that um, especially given the story but you know, I, sometimes you don't have to have experienced something to do that to get the right mood and sometimes you, you can yeah. maybe even subconsciously take something from it even if you think you're not and I, I feel maybe that's more like the case here um, again I was saying earlier you know soundtracks to games like this and of this ilk um at the time were generally just fucking spectacular um we we discussed very recently uh virginia and lyndon holland score for that mm. which came like the year before this and how integral that was to making that game work you know and it's again very much the case here where you know it be, it, it's a gimmick, if you want to call it that, to have the LiDAR scanner, you know, as this sort of uh, game mechanic. But it's also made to be integral to the story in the same way that the soundtrack is. You know, the, these are things that make important beats in the storytelling process. So nothing is just done for the sake of it. And Again, I you know I've said this recently about you know you can understand how indie developers will follow a trend in the hope of like getting noticed more, right? Because yeah, it's understandable you would, but if you, if if you do a game of a certain type that is popular, absolutely, it works. But it's not always about that. I, I think is fair to say that you, know, you will have moments where you're like, oh, okay, uh, you know, it's more about we see what other people are doing in this medium and we'd like to tell that kind of a story like that 
with our own tools. And from every angle, I think Skeletomba gets that, you know, from soundtrack to mechanics to visual design. It knows the story it wants to tell. It is consistent in that storytelling. And that's why it it should stand out more, you know, as, again, you know, a really significant moment in that time period, whether you think anything's predictable or not, it it still is effective in its predictability, I think. Yeah, it is this nice little slice of horror that I found to be, again, like after playing LIDAR Scanner uh, or LIDAR.exe, and then playing this, it was the type of thing where I was expecting it to, I was expecting to have a handle on the entire experience in the first mm. 10 minutes. I assumed it was going to be, okay, you need to, you know, scan these environments, map them. You need to go across a couple of bridges, leap a couple of gaps in the canyon, and that's going to be the entirety of the experience. So everything that comes after that initial 15, 20 minutes, and you start to learn more about the history of the cave and the different types of events that occurred there from a range of time periods, I found all that to essentially just like be gravy because I liked that it dabbled in a couple of different facets of horror that then are able to tie in and never lose track of the emotional investment in this protagonist that you don't know a great deal about. And again, you kind of are suspecting they're not telling you as nearly as much as they should be right mm-hmm. out the gate, but it is the type of thing that I'm appreciative it comes full circle because if we want to get a little more into it. So when you're exploring the cavern, right, you come across basically the remnants of a cult that was living within the caverns, the, yeah. you know, the Salem witch trial setting and whatnot and how they were doing rituals and they were burning perceived witches in these things, which, you know, is a perfect set for, for a, a haunted cavern. Uh, if it wasn't, you know, the mutants from, uh, from the descent. But I think that, them going from that and then building on the history of the cavern itself, it allows the cavern to like become a character essentially, because then you go from that into, Oh, well you're going from something that was from, that was indicative of a time period where you could attribute the awful deeds of those to ignorance of, you know, whether it be science or just a, a general lack of yes. understanding on how things work. And then through the time periods you get to, okay, you have mining and you have, you know, the fact that back in the day, probably like the 18, 1900s, you had these people that were mining in more than likely unsafe conditions. So as a result, you have these mass casualty cavens and whatnot. And it was interesting for me to see a horror game like this that goes from different time periods and reveals, you know, the horrors of those periods that is, you know, not all that far fetched. Seeing the remnants and the phantoms from that is, yeah, sure, that's going to be the more horror tech aspect. But I liked that the horrors of this game were mostly rooted in some semblance of history to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. I thought that that was nice instead of it being just like, well, it's a cave. So, of course, it's just like generic ghosts and hauntings. I don't know. That that played well for me, I thought. Yeah, it's more about tragedy at the end of the day than it is anything else you know it's not sadistic it's not brutal it's not going for that kind of thing which you know i must admit i thought it might do just going into this from lidar.exe that it would be a bit more um malicious you know and it turns out not to be and it was 
a lovely surprise to have something that is very touching. I, I think it's mm. the best way to put it. It is a, a touching sort of horror. You know, I don't want to get caught up in that whole semantics on you know, what is horror because we, we've done it time and time again. But you know, I have to sort of reiterate the point that horror is never just about scaring you and what scares you. You know, like I, I see it all through the um, reviews for this very game. You know, like, uh, oh, it wasn't scary. It, was, it wasn't. It was like, it's not about being scary to be a horror. That, that's not the point. It never is the point. Haunting, melancholy, sad, disturbing, something that needles at you late into the night when you really think about it. Mm. They are elements of horror. You know, it doesn't just have to be because, oh shit, this thing's got six legs and 20 eyes. <laughs> I'm fucking terrified. You know, it, it, it's not like that. It's how it affects you personally. And obviously that means that, you know, if you, you don't have that mentality that you're not going to think that about a game that deals in moral psychological trauma or existential crisis <laughs> that sort of thing because you know as we've learned in this world not everyone deals with the idea of an existential crisis quite the same way some will be like oh fuck how fucked is the world because of all these terrible things happening and i'm living through it and that's awful and other people are like well i i have I used to have a lot more things that were in my favour, and now the one less thing is there. I'm very unhappy. The world has ended as far as I'm concerned. And, and that's, yeah, that, that's the other side of the coin. <laughs> as it goes, so that to them is as horrifying as like someone else thinking, well, you know, the world is burning. And, and <laughs> sure. I ain't going to both sides that. Let's put, <laughs> to, to say the least, but, um, yeah, that is very much the case of perspective and um, you have to have it and you have to have empathy for horror to really work. You know, uh, I think, which is very hard, I must admit, for the horror genre because a lot of it is based on gratification, you know, of like terrible things happening to people and you basically being sort of trained to go oh yeah let's let these people get sliced and diced and whatever <laughs> but it, it's not it's just, that is just one facet of it it can be a roller coaster ride it can be weekend at bernie's it can be a candle at dinner it can be all those things and this is more the candle at dinner where your date reminds you that the world is fucked you know and you are dying <laughs> and that's it and it it's somehow comforting in that regard well i think that there's something comforting in just the finale of the game and i don't know we necessarily have to you know get into no i don't want to get the specifics much. of it we don't have to go too much into it but i think that it resonates as a successful melancholic somber ghost story for me mm. because it kind of just says about life in general like no matter how significant you think what you're doing in life is at any given moment, you are going to leave some kind of a mark. And this yeah. might be a little more of a literal, you know, yeah. uh, a literal take on that. But I think that in that, it's kind of having, again, this melancholic theme throughout and being very somber, it reinstates the fact that like all life is significant and it's going to be memorized or remembered 
by those that, uh, you know, you were a part of their life, which I, yes. I thought was like, that's what made it such a successful ending, right? It's not super, uh, it wasn't something that was unforeseen for this type of a game. Uh, and it's fairly obvious, I think, leading up until the end of the game. Um, but I just, I like, again, the way that it's able to be fully encompassing in what it's doing, you know, from the outset of the experience, it's building to an ending that you're expecting. And yet the way that it's executed, yeah. it all feels like it's been working in tandem with one another, each of those parts mm. to reach that. It doesn't kind of feel like it's out of left field, which if that was the case, sure, maybe it would have been more shocking, but then again, like it might not be an ending that was indicative of the overall experience. Yeah. Whereas with a game such as this, I feel this is the only type of ending you can get just because of how it's handled that thematic in different ways throughout that uh, that journey through the caverns. Yeah. I, uh, like I said, my main beef, I suppose, with the story is not how it ends, because I think that's really well done. I, I think it's not always consistent in how it gets there. But um, I think as it gets to that end point, it really does deserve it. You know, it deserves the end it gets and, and it works for it. It's just, you know, you, a lot of times it's the other way around. You are very much into the journey and the, the destination sucks and, and you hate <laughs> it and it, you want to fucking go home straight away. But this is not that. This is very much a case of, the journey was a fucking nightmare at times. I, I really would like to have found an easier path to it. But we got there and it was the best time of our life and we really loved it. And you know, we, <laughs> we'd send postcards from here forever if we could um, to sort of celebrate how impactful it was as a time. I, that may sound really glib and over the top for what <laughs> we're going here for. it, But it isn't for me. For me, I'm saying it really deserves that kind of praise because... You know, who, you know, five years on, a developer that was very much disappointed in the reception towards it, you know, and basically felt that it bombed, you know, when it came out. I feel, you know, they deserve this. They deserve someone to come out and say, no, 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 please understand your game was impactful, that your game was mm. meaningful. It wasn't perfect, but the best things aren't. You know, you cannot right. be perfect. You cannot strive to be this meticulous you know thriving beast of a thing because it isn't really possible because someone will always disagree with you and i think it, it's just a really interesting game in what it goes for and what it tries you know it gets what it's doing that, that is the most important thing about what this game does is it understands what it wants to do goes there, executes it in the end really well. Choppy on the journey to towards that point, but I think that's forgivable given how, you know, overall as a package and mechanically, especially, it just does the job really nicely. And, and as I said this before, I am an absolute sucker for a, a game that has a good soundtrack. Um, I will forgive plenty for a really good soundtrack and this has that so you know straight away I was like no and it matters more here because it is so impactful and meaningful throughout it fits the tone of the game keeps going through does the right thing with it never feels like it's trying to push something on you that isn't there and it works so fuck yeah 
deserves the help, <laughs> deserves everything praise-wise. Absolutely. And it's a shame, I guess, that maybe right out of the gate it didn't get the praise it deserves mm. because I would love to see not, of course, a continuation of this, but see how you can kind of continue to see games from this dev that, you know, have that emotionally investable yeah. story, having this environment that, you know, on the surface is familiar, but exploring it in a way that's more unique, that's more engaging than just, yes. you know, being essentially handheld through walking through a, a cavern and whatnot, while having horror elements that, you know, there's not an overabundance of them, but it does enough in the moments that they're present to be memorable, more so than, you know, if we had to deal with running away from phantoms for half of the experience, mm. because then it would be more like a chore than something that was genuinely frightening that, and, you know, granted, again, it's fairly easy to avoid dying, but it is the type of thing where, like, I died the first time I got to a section that I was being chased, and it's brief, it's snappy. Yeah. If you die, it's pretty straightforward in terms of what you need to do differently. They're not, like necessarily difficult sections and they're few and far between. So you never hit that loop, which we kind of, I think we talked about it with Jimmy last week where, you know, when you're doing a horror game, if you hit that point where you keep continuously dying, you're never going to build up that tension. And, you know, for me in that section, I died the first time and was genuinely scared because I didn't know that the phantoms would ever run at you. Mm. And then the second time I made, a similar mistake, but I was able to, you know, get just out of arm's reach, but hearing it howl behind my head while I'm running through the water and, you know, my movement is restricted was like genuinely scary a second time. But I never hit that thing where I'm like, okay, now I get to do this for the fourth and fifth time because it's sort of a shoddy construction of, mm. I would say, stealth in the most, you know, uh, elementary of terms. Yeah. And I think um, also when you die of a fall, they make it unpleasant. Yeah, as well. That, that's mm -hmm. important. Yeah, it, it, the crunchy, horrible sound of falling to your death. It, it, it isn't just a fade to black, back where you were sort of thing. That's, you know, you get to feel the whole impact of it and you're there for a couple of seconds while you basically crumple to death on a floor. <laughs> and that, that's marvelous. But, you know, narratively, it works that then you come back for that as well, which is just always a thing that is tricky with horror that we were just saying about what Jimmy said with that, that, you know, you want to make death meaningful and there are many ways to do it. You know, this veers very much more towards stuff that would eventually come with uh, Amnesia Rebirth in, in terms of making death meaningful without it being punishment, so to speak, uh, in a traditional sense. So yeah, I, I like that. I like when, can play with the idea of death in games like this does very well. It reminded me almost of the new Tomb Raider games. You know, when Laura falls, it's not just a fade to black, but yeah. you actually have to like be in that moment and, you know, you hear the impact of hitting the rocks or mm. hitting that chasm, having to look at the body kind of just go limp and just fall the way that it falls. And mm. yeah, I definitely the first time I fell off a cliff in this, the fact that, you know, you have to fall for a good four or five seconds and you just you hear the wind start to pick up and it just it builds the anticipation for that death in a way that, you know, it it captures the element of a survival game that I like. You know, it's the type of thing when you're playing an underwater game, if your Oof. character runs out of air, starts to drown, you know, you, yeah, exactly. You hear you hear them start to like gulp or gasp for air right before the end. And 
little touches like that, I think, make that death more impactful or more memorable, at least, which I mean, Christ. in video games, I mean, that's mm-hmm. difficult to do. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I thought of straight away playing these two games was like, Christ, could you imagine underwater horror with that sort of mechanic? I, I, I think <laughs> I, I think I could play it. I really don't. Because it, it just taps into the very big problem I have, which is like, you don't know what's there. You don't know what's there. Now there's something there. And it's like, um, on land, it's a bit more reasonable because mm-hmm. you have a bit more mobility. You have a bit more control of who you are and what you're doing in the water. Ooh, no, couldn't do that. Uh, I would just, it, it would freak me out in a way. That, <laughs> so if anyone wants to make a game that's very similar that, uh, employs the underwater and darkness and like scanning shit. Brilliant. There it is. Make it, please. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that I cannot play it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah. But, um, I suppose the big thing coming out of that now that we've talked plenty about uh, Scanner Sombra is that, um, the game that brought me to that, uh, Lida X, we, we've talked that game up a little bit here, but, um, I want to go. Just a you know, brief time, you know, if you want to hear more on it, um, at Dread XP, I did an article on both these games. It's there. So, yeah, it, we will go, I go into a little more detail there, but here I would just like to do a quick go over on why I found this, um, you know, so magical and effective. And still having played Scanner Sombra, found it very distinct, you know, and found it to be its own thing, which is amazing. You know, because one of the key takeaways I have from a lot of stuff we play for horror bites and the like, um, you know, this is something you know, for the once with itch where I'm not playing it for horror bites, you know. I, I'm playing it because for, for for work reasons, I suppose, but also just to discover something that looked really cool. And it worked in that regard. So the big thing here is like, it's not in a cage system. It's in this strange world that you're finding messages in and, you know, literally as you scan, certain places will have like, um, messages on the wall that you see separate. You know, the color scheme is more basic, which really helps, you know, and both games employ this thing where they show humanoid shapes in the, uh, you know, in your scan and, you know, accompanied by this sort of n- networky noise that you got from playing a ZX Spectrum back in the day. And in this case, that part fits really, really well. You know, I really love what it does here because when it does scan a humanoid shape, it doesn't stay part of the environment. It's very much used, like I was saying in that paranormal activity movie, where it, it's there for a bit. But if you scan again, it disappears, it fades, it goes, and like that. And I love that. I was like, oh, okay. And because it feels natural, it doesn't feel like this big moment. It just feels like this thing that is happening. And you don't, you always miss it the first time it happens. And you're like, you see the shape, but it's not very, you know, it's not really there, but you see a bit of it and you're like, am I seeing that? Am I just missing something? And it just gradually grows as the game goes. And 
yeah, that, that, that really just pushed things over the edge for me. And then you know, for a 15 minute experience, it paces itself really well. Um, offers up an ending that is very different to Scanner's Umbra. Really just does so much in those 15, 20 minutes that you play it. You know, you get to that last bit in it, you know, where you, you find that sort of, um, sewer tunnel, you know, a very wide sewer tunnel. Um, and the best part about that is how it doesn't scan the darkness in that tunnel. Yeah. And how that pays off. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say on it because you have to, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, you can experience it on it. You easy as pie. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's worth experiencing. Um, and yeah, so phew, mesmerizing for me as a, an experience, if it had been a horror bites thing and I had left it at that fine, you know, it would have been a real highlight, but you know, here it is getting its own portion on a completely different episode because it has inspired me to go and check out another game that is essentially bigger than it. Mm-hmm. And that's wonderful. Yeah, I, how did you um, get on with Lida? I really was appreciative of the fact that uh, that Ken Forrest didn't take an experience that he enjoyed and just remake it, right? Mm. I think he did enough with that core concept that was introduced in Scanner Somber and really made it his own in a couple of the ways that you mentioned. I think that you know changing the color palette was really, from an aesthetic standpoint interesting because it creates a different atmosphere almost yes. where I talked about in Scanner Somber, right? That game has these moments of being melancholic, but at the same time, there is this sort of mesmerizing wonderness, uh, wonderment yes. rather in terms of the color palette that's being used, right? You have these bright colors. It has these optimistic moments of, you know, Oh, maybe I'm going to get out of this. Maybe this is, there is a light, if you will, at the end of this dark, dark cavern. Mm. And the generally at times like, it doesn't feel as oppressive as a cavern should because you're illuminating it with what I would say is kind of like Tetris effect, almost colors. You know, yeah. if you had an explosion of color in Tetris effect, it would be that. Yeah. And I think that in this lidar.exe, it is much more oppressive of an environment because it is that literal black and white. Mm-hmm. And then the key items in the world are the only things that really have color, which when you start to scan the environment and you find clues or ominous messages written in red, that, of course, is not only catching your eye, but it's also, you know, indicating, oh, there is something in this world that I have to be on the lookout for. Yeah. I also really liked that when you're scanning the uh, the environment, the phantoms don't appear naturally, right? In no. Scanner Somber, that sometimes they just appear because it's like, oh, you're trying to draw the emphasis to the importance of them and the environment and the history in this, you only see them, if I'm remembering correctly, if you scan even just like a pixel of them. Yeah. Um, which I like because, like you had mentioned, when you scan one of the phantoms, then that sound plays that like loud. It's, yeah. it's kind of like that loud siren that you'd hear in a horror movie, right? To kind of just like, oh, something scary is happening. Like I said, for, for our older, older side of the audience, it does have that sort of old school cassette tape loading on an old school video game machine. Oh, sort of, okay. um, uh, for anyone else, it's kind of like um, dial-up uh, internet. Yeah, oh, I yeah, suppose. there you go. 
yeah. I'm, not, I'm not so young I didn't have dial-up, so I should have been able to put yeah, that so together. My hairs have just gone like, slightly more gray trying to describe that, but yes. But, <laughs> but yeah, just it, brought back my, uh, my, my PTSD from having net zero dial-up, the <laughs> screeching of that, good Lord. But you're right in that you get that, you know, that jolt of sound, but that I found to be in uh, litter.exe to be even more terrifying because yeah. sometimes I wouldn't have, you know, scanned the entirety of a phantom. I would have been, you know, kind of wildly moving the, uh, the scanner around and just clipped it a little bit. Yes. And then I had to, you know, then re-examine the environment while doing so on edge because I was like, okay, if I don't completely scan this and I run into it, then I'm going to die. And then there's not like a great price associated with death in this either. But it was the type of thing where it just, just because you scan a part of it, it doesn't mean that you're going to avoid it. If you don't, you know, then pay attention with a little more precision to your overall environment, which I really like. Um, I also liked some of the more surreal aspects of uh, radar. Like when you come to that first puzzle, which is basically a child's drawing of a door with a keypad, like, yeah, that's very sort of ominous. Like, why is this here? And then you have to go find the code and then you punch it in. But it's like you're interacting with this drawing as if it was actually technology, which I really liked. That's kind of like a little cool twist on the fact that, oh, is this just a uh, system malfunction of the scanner or something like that? No, this is the environment in and of itself has this dreamlike quality to it, which, you know, I'm always, as I'm on record on this podcast saying I'm a sucker for. Yeah. See, you know, both these games have got something about them that pander to our tastes, I suppose, (laughs) in that regard. Yeah. I mean, one of the smartest things about this is like getting that door code. You know, if you've already scanned it, you don't have to leave the fucking room. I mean, like to do it because of the way that this is mapped out, you can look back and see in the distance where you scan that area, you rooms away, you know, and and you can see it. It's brilliant, uh, and that's like maybe easy, but I, I like that. I really did like the way that ended up being. It's an efficient use of, I think, acknowledging that the player has been mapping this environment and you know of course there's going to be limitations when you're talking about this uh, bite-sized slice Mm. of a game but i say that and then when you go back and play scanner somber think about it that is a general thing where you can look through the environment that you've Mm. been mapping which i really liked and i think that something that we didn't mention in scanner somber is that there are periodic upgrades that you get right you can get a map upgrade which then helps you track your location which you would think you would need right out the gate. But I think that comes back to how smart and yes. linearly designed Scanner Somber's cavern system is, is that you once you get it, you're like, how could I live without it? And then you realize, oh, I'm 40 minutes into the game or something like that. Yeah. And, and narratively, it. it works as well. When you think about it, it, it makes sense that you get it later than you do earlier. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it's good. Um, yeah, so, pff, I mean... Not much more to say that I haven't already said about it. Really effective visuals, really leaves a sense of wonder, uh, questions unanswered, which is, I know people can think is a bit of a cop-out in terms of game design, that, you know, oh, I want to know, sort of thing. But I love it when a game just doesn't give you everything like that, whether that's by choice or whether by uh, just 
I don't know what else to do with this. So this is as far as it goes. I think both work. Yeah, I think both work really well. And in the case of this game, magical really does just that really makes it its own thing compared to Scanner Sombra. You say you don't have much more to say, but I still encourage people to go check out your Dread XP column on uh, mm. on Linar.xe. I think I've pronounced that now three or four different ways, but I'm just we're, I'm going to keep on moving. Uh, but you do a fa- I really really like in your column in introducing that game the lead in that you do and kind of setting the the why this is it's significant the way in which it uses light and the environment and things like mm. that. So I definitely recommend people still uh, go back and check out that article because it's I, it's always great reading your stuff. But I really really uh, appreciated the lead in that you did for that and it sets the stage uh, quite nicely. Well, thank you. But uh, yeah, it, it's important to think that, um, again, I said how this was a rare example of a Ichio style game being a lead to a bigger game. Um, it's also just one of those times where it was one of those times, it really did just grab me. You know, mm. it really did just get the point out straight to me early on and, um, I didn't have anything in mind beforehand. So I, I'm really pleased to have um, got there and, and um, found something with this game. It, it really did take me to a place that I didn't know I needed for horror games, which is a really rare fucking thing you know, in, in this um, genre. You know, for people like ourselves who, who have experienced many different things at this point. Yeah, and I think, again, like I'd said it earlier, I'm appreciative of somebody that plays a game, it resonates with them, and they want to make something that's a homage to it, but they go the the distance in mm. making it their own. You know, we've talked about it sparingly over the last couple of months. Like, you see these trends in games or you see a game that's clearly a homage but doesn't necessarily, A, even indicate the fact that they're inspired by something – but it's just doing it exactly how a developer previously did it, but worse. And this is not yeah. the case of that. There's exactly. enough stylistic and design changes in this that really make it its own homage to that in a way that feels meaningful, that makes for an experience that, again, it's why we love uh, talking about bite-sized horror games and that you can do a lot in a little amount of time. And Absolutely. this is really a fantastic you know, compliment to Scanner Somber, which, if anything, I would say you should do it in the order that you experience them, right? Don't start with Scanner yeah. Somber. Granted, again, it, <laughs> the this horror bite is uh, 15 <laughs> minutes long, but it is a nice almost prologue to that because you get yeah. to see, you know, it sets a nice primer that kind of gives you that horror fix that maybe you think Scanner Somber is going to be primarily concerned with. And yes. if anything, it's a little more breathing room after that. You kind of get that out of the way and you then you can appreciate more sort of this this expanding on that concept in a way mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah, I mean, we, again, as always, we thought this would be a shorter <laughs> chat, but uh, as we've proven time and time again, that is uh, not the case, no matter what we're talking about. No, that's it. It's like, um, yeah, clearly uh, I, I felt passionate enough to recommend this being the uh, subject this week, but uh, it, it's, yeah, there's plenty to talk about and we've managed to do just that. So. <laughs>
Yeah, well, I'm glad that uh, we had that chance to, you know, expand a little bit more on both of these games that you covered yeah. uh, so well in your article. But I think, if anything, that's been uh, definitely a strength of the podcast, right? Getting to chat about something in a little more depth, per- perhaps, uh, whether it's myself or one of our fantastic guests, you know, getting us to think about or highlighting an aspect of a game or an experience yes. that, you know, maybe resonated with one of us more than the other, which then, you know, will inevitably span into a uh, a whole other conversation that <laughs> we thought would be 30 minutes and then goes on to be, uh, you know, 70. Uh, but, you know, I think a good bookend to this week would be highlighting some of the announcements that came out of Gamescom, which mm. is, of course, the, uh, the trade show that's in uh, Germany every year. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have to be upfront. I was not as tuned in just because of, you know, the craziness of my schedule at the moment, like moving house, trying to wrap up things at the old house, making sure everything makes it to the new house uh, in the right way, uh, you know, as it was packed and hopefully not uh, destroyed. Uh, <laughs> but I thought I would just kind of kick it to you and just maybe what were a couple of announcements this week that stood out? I definitely saw a few, but I think as is usually the case, you were a little more uh, aware of all of the announcements. Yeah, I mean, it, this is a year where I, I got to follow it very, very much in a casual manner, um, due to not having to do it for any sort of full time job. But um, it was still fun. There was still some really fun announcements. I suppose top of the gate, and it's not going to be a couple. Sorry, but um, <laughs> Dead Island Two is actually a thing, you know, which is remarkable in itself. Um, That's again, what ten that years has, later. Yeah, different uh, dev team now, everything. It was originally, I think, the Spec Ops Align team that were doing this. But um, correct me if I'm wrong, Internet. But um, now it's Dan Buster, you know, former Time Splitters dudes um, doing it. And the um, reception from people who were at Gamescom and got to sort of get hands on with it is that you know, it's quite positive positive which is great because i really really want dan buster to have a good game you know they had to do the um second of that uh red dawn-esque series that i can't remember the name of quite now Homefront. that's it yeah they, they had to take that on after that the previous developer tapped out and did the best they could with it and there was some good shit in that it just yeah, overall, it was a, a washout as a package, but it did have Time Splitters 2 in the fucking build, so it was instantly a 10 out of 10, really, um, if you, you're really going for it. But this, I mean, what's frustrated me about Dead Island is um, Techland, when they left it, you know, they left it in, in a land of promise that wasn't quite fulfilled, and then they went on and did Dying Light, which pretty much did that. You know, it, it fulfilled that promise. Dying Light is one of my favorite fucking zombie games. You know, it, I love what it does. Dying Light 2 does a really good job that we've had a discussion. I had per, you know, what, one of the rare podcasts where you weren't involved, where it was me and, um, Andrew King talking about that game, Dying Light 2. Um, it was still a really good game with its own caveats and problems. So to have a new Dead Island game that might actually be good you know because the original Dead island was you know hit miss project riptide was a fucking mess but it had a bit of fulci to it that i kind of enjoyed so you know i was a little more forgiving 
if it wasn't such a broken mess in terms of like finishing. Mm. Uh, but yeah, this trailer, I don't think it did much for me, but the thing that really did it for me was just the words that came out afterwards from people who've actually got hands on with the game, mm. you know, and said what fun they'd have it and how no frills exactly what we expect from it sort of game it is, which great. That's all I want. That's all I want. A co-op zombie game where you just smash the shit out of zombies <laughs> in California. Brilliant. Love it. Great. Do it. I don't quite get how that makes it an island, but um <laughs> Maybe it's yeah. an Alcatraz. Yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe it's doing that. Maybe it's doing Escape from LA and um you know, it's this cornered off sort of area, but still. Um did you um, see the trailer for this one? Uh, I did, yeah. And as somebody that... <laughs> I think the first Dead Island came out when I was in college. And I have spent more time playing Dead Island than I ever did with Dying Light. So the idea that, you know, I get to be in that world with those, you know, those wild sort of mad scientist, mad mask-esque, uh, you know, crafting of weapons yeah. and whatnot. Uh, that's exciting. And I think that... It's great to see a game that, you know, has been in quite literally development hell for as long as Dead Island has to get that second wind into. And I mean, of course, based off the trailer, I was like, oh, I'm glad this is still going to be a thing. But yeah. after all this time, that what does that really mean? But, you know, in obviously hearing from you that people have had hands on time with it and that's been positive. I think that that's a good indication that, oh, maybe they're is going to be a happy ending for this game that's been in that sort of limbo yeah. for so long. I guess for you, like, what does that sequel have to do that will justify, I don't know, actually, <laughs> I guess, could anything justify that development length? But just oh. in being a successful sequel to a game that has been out of commission for so long, like for you personally, what does it have to do? I think expectations are very low, mainly because of what Techland have gone out and done since. Um, but like I said, because Dan Buster are involved and, you know, their general involvement with games like Time Splitters, I think they understand how to make that kind of thing fun. And they've been given the time to do that, you know, a few years now since they got handed the reins. So I'm happy to see what they do with that i really really hope that they've been given the time to make this their thing and to have fun with it um i don't even expect like the best thing in the world or anything like that i i just want something that's a really fun time that understands what it's doing and i cannot think of a better developer for that you know i, I really think they are the best choice and they deserve that win. They deserve not to be handed a poison chalice that they cannot, you know, find the antidote for. <laughs> <laughs> and this really does feel like that might be the one. Um, so yeah, I, I'm biased maybe, but I, I really think they, they really need this to be a big deal. You know, I, without I it think being it's, like it's definitely big. exciting that the time splitter guys are. Behind it, I would say that that, mm. if anything, is the most exciting thing from my perspective. You know, it's like cool. You've got that Dead Island name, but those are guys that have a track record in making fun games that don't take themselves too seriously. And mm. I think that that is what you need in a game like this. That 
you know, has that balance of zaniness to the zombie world that yeah. could define it, but not going overboard. You don't want, at least I don't want Borderlands with zombies, right? You don't want that level of zaniness and over the top no. humor, but something that doesn't take itself seriously, but that's more reflective of the mechanics in the sense that like, oh, if you want to make the craziest zombie killing contraption ever or, you know, do martial arts moves on zombies, like I'm all game for that. But not having that zaniness be as prevalent maybe in yeah. the narrative or the writing or character development. So to move on, um, the next thing I have to mention, because yeah, I, without ever covering the games, I've been very open of my dislike for the Outlast games. The Outlast Trials may be the one that changes things. Um, <laughs> which is, it feels kind of ironic considering, you know, I've just been moaning about all oh, the, these multiplayer horror games, but here it, it kind of works for this franchise to take a different leap mm. because I really get why they're going for that, you know. What are the best parts of any film that was Saw-based after the original Saw? It was having a group of people together trying to escape whatever fucking sadistic puzzle that was was going on. And The Outlast Trials feels like that. It Saw 2, the game, in a lot of ways... I I really think that works better than what they were trying to do with the single player games. I really think we could do with more of that. And so the, this is actually the rare instance where I am very much advocating <laughs> for that. And I'm really enthusiastic about a developer going for that because it could be really cool, really exciting from what they've shown. You know, the traps, the almost as a dynamic that might make people um, distrustful of each other and mm-hmm. make it more of a, a social experiment. Oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> that that would work perfectly with what Outlast is. It might really make Outlast what it should be. And I'm so, so up for that. Did you um, see the trailer for this one? I did. And I think that... I totally co-sign what you're saying in terms of having an aspect of it. Like that's been our chief complaint, right? Of the Outlast games is that they are so over the top and so oftenly over the top that it's difficult to really ever, you know, catch your breath, if you will. Um, And I think that, you know, beating you over the head with the scares and the aggressiveness and the over the top nature of them, it's more draining than it is terrifying. And I think that having it be a communal experience of playing with other people that's perfect. Because if I'm going to play a game with my friends, I want something that's over the top, that's very, you know, gruesome and gory, and we can kind of laugh at how excessive it is in a way. But at the same time, it fosters that, I guess, for a lack of a better phrase, it would be like the PvP and PvE aspect of the game. You guys are going to work together for a certain amount of time. And then inevitably, at the very end, perhaps, you have to sacrifice one of the survivors, if you will, uh, to you yourself survive, which is, of course, an aspect of those Saw films, which would play perfectly. And I can't think of any horror games that I've played that are multiplayer that really present that scenario mm. in a way other than, you know, 
if you're playing something like Dead by Daylight, I suppose you could fuck over a teammate, but it's not part of the the gameplay itself does not foster that necessarily. No. Whereas if you have a game that really it says, hey, neither of you are going to progress if one of you is still alive. That's something that could be a more interesting facet that uh, whether it be you fucking over your friends or just yeah. a random person, like that could be something that was fun, especially if it's tied to some demented puzzle, if you will. Yeah. Have you ever played um, any of the We Were Here sort of games? I have not. No. But I know so, of them. Yeah. So they do that very well. You know, it is a cooperative escape room kind of thing. And that was the sort of first thing I thought of where I saw this in action or thinking, okay, so it's a horror themed version of that. And while that has its problems, because fucking hell, anyone you don't know trying to cooperate <laughs> with them is just going to be a nightmare. I, I found that in so many games, it's like, this is a cooperative experience that requires you to speak. It's like, well, that's great. I have to know everyone. If that's the case to make that work. But, you know, when that concept is nailed, it really sings, you know, you can make the most out of it. And this would be good if it does even half of what the, we were, I think the last game I played that was We Were Here Forever, um, did, uh, where it leaves a lot in the player's hands in terms of interpretation. And, it's exciting because you have that, but I can see where the downside might be. Where you might be like, well, what if I'm paired with a fucking idiot or an eight year old? <laughs> and not to sort of conflate the two as being the same thing, but you know, it's like lack of knowledge because you were too young to have it and lack of knowledge because you're a fucking idiot <laughs> are two very different things. But you know, comparatively they are going to affect your gameplay in the same way and uh, a, a conversation I was having my, with my son today where we were in a store and he was telling me about this um, eight-year-old kid trying to um, sell his uh, parent on um, buying Grand Theft Auto Oh God! Yeah, I know. Takes I was me just back like, to my my childhood. It was, like, it was like, and there's me thinking, I wouldn't fucking let my child play Grand Theft Auto that degree at this point. Yeah, it's like, and I'm very liberal with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it, it's just fucking odd to to think that that. Um, but you know that there are going to be people out there that don't give a shit, that don't understand, and let people do that kind of thing, and. I suppose you can't really account for it because if you do, you're admitting that's the problem. And Outlast is like a key series in that because a lot of the popularity of that series has come from people who never should be playing Outlast, you know, at that point. Um, but yeah, you are basically admitting that you don't give a shit. You will take the money wherever it comes from, but wait, it's fine. Yeah, it's like, um, what do you do? What do you do? It's a tricky, tricky road to uh, go down. But there were other games. Yeah, I will on. say, I will say though that it's pretty great that you and I, who have been critical of the franchise up until this point, are pretty optimistic about what mm. the future looks like. And I'm pretty sure there's a closed beta 
this October. So who knows, maybe we'll get some time with it or just learn more about it and get some examples of what that, you know, the multiplayer aspect can look at, which, you know, I yes, think please, it's... Red Barrows, prove me wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to, I would really, really love to see the appeal of this franchise because I think this is the utmost appeal of this franchise. But I think since we've been talking about multiplayer and horror, it's only natural the next game we talk about is the announcement of a Killer Clowns multiplayer game. Yes. So, um, yeah, which, yeah, I got a bit of blowback for um, talking about this week, which was fair blowback, I must add. But um, because, you know, I sort of was there saying, oh, you know, another multiplayer licensed horror game. But, and, you know, I've already pointed this out where I get that people will follow a trend and that will be a thing. But what maybe I didn't really get in that article, the nuance of it is that, you know, sure, people will follow a trend, but it doesn't mean that they're doing it just for that. You know, maybe they want to push that medium in a different way and, be the trendsetter of that genre, you know, and you only have to look at the dynamic that happened between Friday the 13th, the game, and Dead by Daylight. I mean, that felt like an unfair battle at the time because one game was very much handcuffed by a licensed battle while the other game was allowed to just keep on going, you know, whatever, whatever, and history may have been very different had that not happened. But yeah, it's difficult. You want to have more, don't you? You want to have something different. Killer Clowns from Outer Space, you know, I point this out in the article I put out this week on DreadXP that, um, you know, we've seen it done recently in a game that we brought up on Horror Bites um, that basically is a homage to Killer Clowns from Outer Space. And while not perfect by any means, it shows that you, you can take that in different directions. You can go different places with these things. It doesn't always have to be a multiplayer horror game. And the biggest thing that irks me about it is that I understand why. I understand that that's where everyone sees that well, they've done this game. And I reckon we could do that game but better. And many developers, I don't think it's as cynical as saying, you know, oh, they're doing it because just of the money sort of thing. That's not my intention in saying that. It's more a case of, I look at it and think, that's the lucrative genre. That's the one that people like. That's the one that people are making popular. How can I make something that is better than what they made? How can I really evolve that franchise or or concept and make something that it really extends and pushes forward what people want from that? Something more than just killers chasing around survivors that have yeah, to fix a and, generator. <laughs> which is, yeah, when you get down to the bones of it, I think there is so many different ways of doing that, you know, and... That's great. Yeah. It just, but I think you could 
experiment more outside that. You know, you, you can have a few more types of game that are a bit more daring, especially when you get to licenses like this, where it's very cult. You know, um, I don't think you've really got the fan base generally to make Killer Clowns from Outer Space the massive hit it should be. But at the same time, I get it. It, it serves as exposure for the brand, you know, and to make people see what is undeniably a film that more people should really see. I just want something that's different. I mean, my key takeaway from all this was like, Friday the 13th, you know, with Gun Media had a really fucking great multiplayer game that was mostly mired in, you know, early technical issues, but the big problem it had was they couldn't update it because of licensing issues that they had no control over. Right. But it didn't mean that was the only way to go because the people who made, um, Slayaway Camp, you know, whatever it is, um, the, multi- the, uh, puzzle game, then took the, that same license on and made a Friday the 13th version of it. And that was really good because it was a great homage. It was a puzzle game and it did everything you needed it to do. It shows that you can take a license and do something daring and different on a lower budget, lower expectations. That, that's always my concern with these things. It's like you don't have to do the big multiplayer route because it's a dangerous. It's more of a gamble than trying something different and daring. And I don't think it needs to be necessarily single player to do that. But you know, multiplayer is the focus, and and you are copying one of two games when you do that. It's either. You know, Left for Dead or you know, Dead by Daylight. That's it. You know, it's no matter how you spin it, that is what happens. Well, that's why it's such a gamble, right? And it becomes more apparent, I think, when you get a game that feels like it's trying to coast on mm. that trend of multiplayer gaming, right? It's going to become apparent within the first week of that game being released whether or not more thought went into it other than hey, let's capitalize on this IP, which we were able to scoop up. And I think that when you, you know when you have those games that we've been talking about, whether it be Friday the 13th, whether it be The Evil Dead, the game, right? I think that those are two of the biggest IPs in horror uh, in terms of things we've seen adapted from film. Those are successful because they push the boundaries of just being that typical kind of sort of, well, I guess in the case of Friday the 13th, it excelled at being that, killer versus survivors type thing where you have to run around and solve things. But overall, like when I look at the evil dead game, that's something that, you know, pushed the boundaries of what we were expecting. It delivered on a side of multiplayer horror games that are not as common. And of course it wraps the IP in, in a really smart way. Killer clowns. It'll be interesting to see whether or not they're able to add a facet to gameplay that is indicative of the IP while pushing it in a direction that we haven't previously seen, which will you know will remain to be seen but i think that that will be essentially the only route of this having success outside of you know the first 3 months of it being released because yeah. if it ends up being the thing where it's like here's three clowns versus three f- to five survivors 
and you have to, you know, do the same three to four objectives over and over, it's yeah. going to have a pretty short lifespan. And I'll be interested to see how they can use the IP to drum up an inventive or unique side of gameplay and how they can incorporate that. Because yeah. like you said, Killer Clowns of the three that we've mentioned, like that is probably the most unique out of them and how it juggles mm. horror with comedy and it being self-aware while still having some genuinely creepy moments in the movie itself. So I'll be interested to see you know how they're able to take that very unique identity and hopefully yield some unique identity in the gameplay itself. Yeah. I mean, my concerns are my concerns. You know, they, they come from the fact that it is a, a niche within a niche. Yeah. So I, I want it to do well. I'm just worried that this isn't the kind of game that you want it to be that kind of game, you know? Um, so, you know, as ever, I would love absolutely adore to be proved wrong because that means they've done the right thing and but i think homaging and respecting the property goes so well uh until yeah you get to the deep bones of an execution or something you you really need to push something beyond that to appeal to people who haven't got a fucking clue what it is you know and let's be real and honest here that is a large part you know, of any audience you will get that don't give a shit don't know about uh, killer clowns from outer space and it's like sure prominent people within the horror industry media love that you know and i think it's a fucking wonderful film and deserves a bigger audience but if we're real about it it is a minute amount of people that really care. And you know, the greatest benefit for this, it will expose more people to that film. But it's also, you know, an attraction because how do you make it viable? I, I, you know, I'm not going to go into the money and whatever that goes into making this a game, but is it worth the investment you're making to make a multiplayer game based on that? When, you know, if it was the only game out there of its type, absolutely brilliant. But there are so many competitors within, within this sort of micro space in that genre. Right? You know, it's an undeniable trend. You have to do a lot these days to be a standout from that pact because yeah. we see so many on a weekly basis that are like, well, I see what worked for these. We'll just do that when, you know, as anybody would tell you, like, that's not the route to success. Yeah. And, you know, I get it. And I I agree with uh, what um, Matt Scotcher at Gun Media said that, you know, it's like often it's more about design and what you feel that you can bring to the table in terms of design in making a multiplayer horror game with a license. But still a very, it's a very small table to sit at, you know, and you can't be unaware of that. You know, you can't be unaware of the idea that there are other games that have tried it. There are other games that, you know, had circumstances been better, would have profited more from doing this with better licenses you know with more um 
agreeable. Yeah, you know, with more agreeable licenses. And this isn't it. That I'm sure it will please the people that love Killer Clowns, me included. But is that enough? It's not. Is a that enough to? Yeah, is that enough to sustain? Okay, and the big thing for me here is legacy. Legacy has to be a factor. And as much as we want games based on horror licenses, multiplayer is a very, very, very precarious place to go with with that because you don't want to be fucking your game up just because you've picked multiplayer in a realm that already has, at the very least, two or three strong candidates uh, in a subgenre, just a subgenre, not like taking into account the whole fucking thing of multiplayer games in general. Like you are trying to draw an audience within an audience, within an audience to get something and your vision, honourable as it may be, isn't necessarily going to win out, which I think is frustrating and sad because, you know, years ago might have worked, but now it's so competitive. Yeah, and I don't. I really don't want anything like this to fail. I really don't. I, I really, really don't. I want Killer Clowns from Outer Space to be. The surprise mash hit that, you know, the, the film was, you know, in its way, you know, it doesn't have to be like blockbuster money in terms of what it does, but to find an audience, to find people that resonate with it, even if they didn't care about the film and just flow with it and it be this great big thing. I really, really hope that's the case. And, that's the main thing I, I take away from it. I just had concerns that there are other ways to deal with this that don't put so much risk on it, you know. And that that's my big gripe, maybe with it. Yeah, I'll be interested to, to follow, you know, the development overall because I think, you know, not to be overly cynical or say I have an overly critical eye, but the I I think it'll be fairly apparent, you know, in, in the coming months. When we start to see more, you know, let alone see more gameplay or gameplay, um, it'll be pretty apparent, I think, whether or not we're pushing the boundaries of what we expect from these multiplayer experiences or if this is a case of like, let's take this beloved but niche horror IP and we're going to put it onto a framework that we've seen time and time again, which, you know, I think when you start to think about games overall, horror games specifically, like you start to see these games crop up for, you know, that being the trend for a decade, two decades at a time, it's like, well, when those become less and less viable because you start to have so many, and this isn't to say Killer Clowns will be a failure, but if you start to have an overabundance of these multiplayer-focused experiences that mm. overly rely on IP end up being a failure, it's going to be this space where it's like, well, who's going to shell out the money for an IP that is not guaranteed when you don't have that original framework in and of itself to uh, really prop that up on because 
in the long run, that's not going to be a successful formula, but we can be optimistic still. And I think that if anything, you know, knowing some of the talent that's behind this, that got their hands on the IP, yeah. seeing what they can do with it, I think is, is going to be an intriguing look at their journey with that. And, uh, maybe hesitantly optimistic about it, but uh, we'll have to wait and see. It's something that I definitely want to uh, return back to at a later point. And I already signed up for the beta, uh, so I can try to get some hands on. So we'll we'll uh, hopefully have some more, uh, some news on that, whether it be them or our own hands on time in the near future. Yeah. Um, so quick roundup of the other things, because we are running late on this one, but um, Lies of P, the Bloodborne, Bloodborne-esque, uh, Pinocchio game actually can, continues to look really good. Did you see the uh, trailer for that one? I did see that. Yeah, that was definitely the most probably intriguing thing that yeah. I've seen. You know, combining that Bloodborne uh, methodology to a new, you know, dark fantasy setting and, you know, the Pinocchio aspect <laughs> looks wonderfully deranged within I that mean, context. One of the funniest things about it, though it shouldn't be funny, which is the showdown between Pinocchio and Geppetto that happens in that, that it's just like, I knew they were going to do it. And it's just like, still, oh man, big brass balls to, to really go for that. But yeah. It, it looks good to me. You know, I, I think it'll actually be one of the better sold like sort of games as a result. Well, that's the thing with those types of games. I'm not, in love with that style of game, but I am in love with those games based on just their aesthetic. I mean, just from the look of this game, you know, mechanically, it looks fairly along the lines of what I would expect, but I'm more interested in just the world of itself, which is why you yeah. know, we had that chat with Aaron uh, about Bloodborne, right? A game that, you know, I don't consider to be a great deal of fun. I don't necessarily seek out Souls-type games, but I'm in love with that world and the gothic architecture and the yeah. monsters within it that I keep plugging away at it, even if it <laughs> is for me quite challenging. Uh, I just love that world. I'm engrossed by it. And it's probably the best example of making a world that is more appealing than even the gameplay for some people like myself. So yeah, Lies of P was definitely one that uh, yeah. I had an eye on during those that slew of announcements. And uh, I definitely want to check that out in the future. Yeah. So um Quickly, um, we had new tales from the Borderlands, but the new Telltale Squad, um, that's all right. Yeah, I suppose I, I will hopefully be seeing more of that soon. Um, uh, we had Dying Light 2's first DLC, Bloody Tides, which looks like a sort of arena combat thing. Um, oh, it's not story. I think there's story to it, but I think it has, you know, it's, um, Mainly like a PvP versus E sort of thing going on, which, which is great. I, I think that works because they had elements of that in the original game. Um, what else did we have? We had, da 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 but apparently anyone, again, who's been on site and really been hands-on with the game has been a bit more positive about how it works out in greater context. So I, I'm happy about that. Um, I have no time for Rick and Morty. I mean, personally, as a series. But Solar Opposites you know, by Justin Roiland, I, I really do enjoy. Uh, I think 
because it it has this pressure on it to be what the fuck Rick and Morty is at this point. Um, yeah, anything in the middle of that, perfectly fine for me. Um, we had a, another Telltale game in based on the Expanse, which you know has sight horror elements to it. Quite enjoying the look of what that was doing. Um, Hideo Kojima's podcast is getting English translated, which, as I said in the week, is perfect for me. I really want to hear more from him, even if it isn't from his own lips. Um, yeah, it, that was great for me. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was it, really. Yeah, you know, more Callisto me, uh, protocol gameplay, but I mean, it was yeah, more that, that was the big we... end uh, point I was going to bring up. But it's, I mean, that's looking promising still. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, I still, yeah. Weirdly, it reminds me more of the first Dead Space than it does the second and third, which I know a lot of people would be very happy about. I didn't like the first game as much. Oh, I'm quite uh, taken with the second as well. Yeah, I mean, the second, I think, is Resident Evil 2 Aliens level of, like, escalation. You know, I, I think it does a really great job in terms of that. Um, but, you know, the, I think it's got some gnarly stuff going on. And I think it's going to be a really well-received game. Even I don't think it even has to review well to um, get people on board with it. I think I actually think it'd be a game that might just do better in general public's feeling than it will do in terms of reviews. Um, just because it's a throwback in a lot of ways, and you know the you know the people we have now in terms of like critical analysis of games come from a different time zone and so to speak from when Dead Space was popular so I could understand if it didn't do so well Uh, you know it may well still do well but I think um, for the job it's trying to do I think it will do well yeah, I think that it looks like more, you know, deep space alien carnage, which is what, exactly what I want before, you know, of course, the Dead Space uh, remake hopefully comes out early next year. But I think that there's a certain level of, I would hope, comfort that the devs have on Callisto Protocol, which is, you know, they it largely feel, looks at this point like a homage to Dead Space. Yes. So they're getting a certain amount of good faith with that based off of what we've seen, just because it mm-hmm. does look the part which I would hope gives them enough confidence to, you know, take some deviations with that creative liberties, yes. if you will, and make it their own in a way that at the end of the day, if it kind of just feels like this gorgeous, gory homage to Dead Space, that's great. But yep. anything on top of that, I think really does give them a chance to, you know, build upon that foundation in a meaningful way that allows yeah. them to, you know, actually see a see some actual, you know, growth with that core concept. Because, you know, that's a strong foundation to start with. So the idea that you could build something and make it your own, whatever that might look like, I think hopefully they realize uh, that they have that opportunity there. Yeah, I mean, when we were talking in the past reel for this game in an episode before, 
I likened it to being the battle between SimCity and City Skylines. Yeah, um, EA's tried and trusted brand against someone saying, no, you know what? I want to fucking do the same thing without the restrictions of being this big company. And I feel like that's going to be this against the Dead Space remake. Um, and this gets a lot more, um, positive points by being okay, from the people that made that the original Dead Space. And, you know, I mean, if you really want to dig into the history of the remake of Dead Space, you know, it, and you have any sort of care towards that game and that series, even it kind of ride, you know, riles you up a bit to think about any you know, EA making this remake of a game that they fucking took the developer, made them make increasingly ridiculous things for them that didn't fit what they actually were and then just dumped the developer out of, you know out of the fucking emergency hatch so to speak and so it's less endearing to me i know that's not how everyone's gonna you know the casual observer is gonna go oh remake of the game i really enjoyed in 2008 brilliant yeah i'll, I'll play that they aren't going to think, oh, well, yeah, but they shafted the original developer to, ma- developer to uh, make that game. Which is no, no, no criticism of anyone you know, approaching the game that way, but because you know, uh, many industry uh, types rely on that. You know, they rely on people to go, I don't want to know the history and the ins and outs of what's going on with this industry. I just care about the games I liked. You know, it's like, so it doesn't matter if it's by a different developer. It doesn't matter about the history of how fucked the original developer got from that. But I hope, I really, really hope for its own sake that the Callisto Protocol is a massive critical and commercial hit in those months before that Dead Space remake comes out. Because I, I it would just be so worthwhile. So I'd be so happy for those developers you know, to um, get that moment you know, because it doesn't really happen that often. I think of like the X criterion folk who, you know, kept chasing that dragon in the wake of having to, you know, of being disbanded by EA and not getting that recognition because they weren't making exactly that thing. And people were expecting them to make something that was, akin to what they made at a big budget studio and that was really unfair you know this feels like it might work because the people that care will like it if it does enough do you when we talked about um tormented souls and how that felt like a very old school ps2 era sort of survival horror game mm-hmm. you know because they understood the project and I think that's what it, it gained that audience and gained that love and if Callisto Protocol does that with PS3 era horror brilliant absolutely deserved yeah and if anything again I'm super excited that they stripped all all association with PUBG on it so it can be its own thing that doesn't yeah. have that baggage which you know that would definitely be more of a forced baggage that would be recognizable yeah. but yeah i think that that game is still every time i see something of that it kind of just reinstills my excitement for that game 
Um, and yeah, you know, funny enough, I started by saying I missed a lot of the Gamescom coverage, but I had seen the majority of what you, of what you mentioned, which you know shows that as is usually Osmosis. the case with uh, yeah <laughs> re- releases that we're looking forward to, we're typically of uh, of similar mind. But yeah, that was fun, and I think uh, I think we're gonna start to try to cover a little more notable news stories at the mm. end of episodes, just as a nice dovetail. Yeah. Uh, with, I mean, horror is big, isn't it? It is a minute. So you know, you're getting plenty of it. Yeah, we will try and add these sort of supplemental things to the end of episodes because it's nice to have a sort of, it's something different. I, I think I described it to you at the beginning of this, before we started this episode, as being like the reverse cinema experience, you know, yep. it's like where you get the traders and then you get, the film it's like yeah it's like you get in the film then the trailers at the end it's like in video game terms maybe that works better it, it, but um I, I like having like a separate discussion that sort of takes a little weight off the initial discussion yeah and i, I look forward i mean thinking about how often we're getting you know big horror stories in, in big stories about horror in uh games and whatnot it's the type of thing where it's like always want to talk about it but then it's the type of thing do we dedicate a whole episode to it but no you're yeah. right it is a perfect you know ending once we've gotten through the brunt of our conversation we can kind of uh you know kick back and just chat about things that we're either looking forward to or things that potentially might make waves in our little uh corner of the game side of things but yeah i think it'll be something fun that adds a new facet to the show that uh we can include at our leisure, right? I mean, mm. not every week we're going to have listener input on games that we're covering, right? It's just, you know, we have weird taste in games. So we're going to talk about the most popular things and we're going to talk about things. Chances are only you and I and a small handful of people have. So it's a nice yeah. way to, you know, chat about what's going on in the industry and in our side of the industry uh, outside of just the main core of our conversation mm. uh, on a weekly basis. But yeah. I think, uh, as always, Neil, it's a uh, pleasure chatting horror with you for Safe Room. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. If you enjoy the show, please rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod for show updates. You can also email us at saferoompod at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we're going to cover. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next Monday.